Pause podcast. My name is Jane Chai and I'm a co-host of the show. In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Karan Singh, the co-founder and COO of Ginger, leading the company's operations and strategy. He has over 15 years of experience in the healthcare industry, consulting with biopharma clients, commercializing data analytics, and establishing research partnerships with academic medical centers. He has also served as a scholar at the Aspen Institute, delivered keynotes at the Public Health Institute and the National Institute of Mental Health, and was recognized as a rising star in healthcare by LinkedIn. Kron has a BA and BS in economics and business administration from UC Berkeley and an MBA from MIT Sloan with a fellowship in entrepreneurship from the MIT Legatum Center for Development. Welcome to the show, Karan. We're really excited to have you. Behavioral health is a topic that's very top of mind for a lot of folks, especially with COVID-19, but even before. And Ginger's been doing a lot of really interesting things there, both when it started since its inception to now with sort of the new and exciting announcement with Headspace. So to kick us off, can you please provide an overview of Ginger's offerings since its very beginning up until now before the Headspace merger? Yeah, certainly, Jing. You know, the hypothesis or thesis for Ginger when we first got started over a decade ago really had to do with this core idea that there was or really is no blood test for your depression. There's no easy ways to measure stress. We largely rely on survey instruments that were developed by pharmaceutical companies as a way to, to really you know, justify the medications that they were creating. and we set out to really leverage data you could collect passively from an individual, from a member or patient to really understand when they may be symptomatic, when they may be having a depression flare and get the right treatment in a proactive setting. And so most of our early days had to do with working with provider groups from large academic medical centers like UCSF or Partners Healthcare to integrated delivery networks like Kaiser Permanente to you know, small community health clinics all across the country to offer them a technology platform that allowed them to, to really understand how their members were doing outside of clinic and deliver a more proactive and preventative level of, of mental health care. And through that experience and through publishing a number of, of studies over the years uh, with eight out of the top 10 academic medical centers, we, we really discovered or realized that the core challenge of mental health was actually not downstream per se and optimizing that care delivery, although that was really critical. It was well before that, before members even got through the front door, it was accessing care. It was getting over the stigma associated with mental health. And then once you got through that door, it was then actually finding a provider that was available, that was practicing evidence-based medicine and actually was accepting health insurance or could deliver that care in a cost-effective manner. So now over six years ago, uh, we went from selling into providers into becoming one ourselves and setting up a a virtual clinic with access to on-demand mental health, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and typically under a few minutes with a team of coaches, therapists, and psychiatrists delivering that support in all 50 states and now in 50 countries internationally. I'd love to take a step back and understand from your perspective as a co-founder of Ginger, what was your original motivation for founding a mental health startup? You know, the story is, is personal, like it is, I'm sure, for many people who have found themselves in this space. For me, it started almost 13 years ago now, actually, to, to the month when I was on the other end of a phone call from a loved one who had tried to take their own life. And, you know, it really shook me 
to my core. I've always thought of myself as a good read on people, a good judge of character. And I just was completely blindsided. I had no idea. And, you know, I realized the deeper I dug, the more I realized that this was this being, you know, mental health is an everyone problem that most everyone goes through. Um, they might not use that term and that language, but everyday stressors from life all the way to, you know, actual clinical depression. And certainly wasn't something that you talk about, especially in communities of color. My family is originally from India. And for many people, it's the no-go zone. It's, it's what you don't talk about growing up. And um, I just realized after this had happened that it was something I actually wanted to, to spend some energy in trying to solve. And so eventually went back to school. I was in, it was in consulting at the time. I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I was working in the, the biotech and actually healthcare space at the time. And I decided to go back to graduate school at MIT and Harvard. It was a dual degree program between the medical school and the business school, really to try to understand this intersection of, of healthcare and data and technology and try to see if we could uh, make a dent in the space and really start to bring a level of objectivity and rigor to a space that had largely never really had much of that. Thank you for sharing that. It's definitely the personal piece that creates sort of orienting motivation. And it really shakes everyone to the core when something like that happens. And people, I think, sometimes don't realize how common it is and how stigmatized historically mental health and issues around it have been. So it's great to see that Ginger has built so much traction to both make inroads from a clinical piece, but also in terms of destigmatizing a huge disease burden. I'm also curious, what was the inspiration behind the name Ginger? <laughs> yeah, certainly. There are a, a few different origin stories. The one I love to share is really um, has to do with my mom. In many ways, my mom knows me better than I know myself. She used to know when I was coming down with something uh, before I even realized it. And so when she saw that I was coming down with something or thought that I might be, uh, she used to feed me ginger and honey uh, or ginger tea. And so, you know, at the time, we didn't really know what we were going to be when we grew up as we were starting ginger. And we really believed though, fundamentally in this, this notion of preventative care that ultimately to stem the tide in, in healthcare more broadly, but certainly in mental health, you actually had to catch things early. The only way you were going to, to tackle this supply and demand imbalance was actually to address a lot of the need before it became a need and to teach people skills and, and resilience before they actually had a core issue. What makes Ginger different and what really feeds into the efficacy from a clinical outcomes perspective you see, especially considering that mental health is one of those things, to your point, where it's tough to realize you have issues until something bigger happens. And it's also more difficult to kind of see and hear and taste and measure some of the progress that patients may be occurring. Great question, Jing. You know, I, I think a lot of that has to do with just our lessons learned from the front lines of care. We launched Ginger now over a decade ago. And, and for, for chapter one of our story was in many ways building a technology platform and selling that into provider groups, everybody from the Kaiser Permanentes in California and, and across the country to Partners Healthcare out in Boston and large academic medical center to community health clinics in rural Tennessee and Indiana. What we found through all those experiences was that there was an incredible amount of friction in throughout the journey of an individual who might be experiencing a mental health system, that symptom, that they had to first you know, get over the stigma that goes with mental health and admit to themselves that they might have a quote-unquote problem. 
They then might go to a primary care physician, which is where historically most of mental health has been treated, given a list of names to dial and try to find a provider, nine out of 10 who typically are full, get to that provider of which 75% of the time they're not practicing evidence-based care and eventually come out of that provider's session and pay full price because most providers are out of network because the cost that most health insurance plans that reimburse those providers is, is unfortunately very low. And so, you know, at every step in the process, there was this friction. And we realized that in order to tackle this problem at scale, that we were sprinkled at the end of a broken system. And we actually had to start at the very beginning, that most people were waiting outside the front door and access to care was a core issue. And even before that, they actually, that catching them before they even needed to get to that door was really what was going to stem the tide. And so that's what ultimately you know, drove us to becoming a, a full stack virtual mental health provider and really drove the design of the system that we created, which starts with behavioral health coaching as really a, a unique level of support in this system, but goes all the way to licensed clinical therapy and psychiatry for medication management. And so when we think about prevention and preventative care, you know, it's both being able to offer a wide spectrum of need so that no matter what door you walk through, you can get in, you can get support, and you can get back to some level of stability. But it's also thinking about ways to remove friction and remove stigma from that process. And so I think all of those things kind of come together to build an experience that, you know, we've honed over the years now. And, and it's exciting to see the, the, the amount of innovation and the amount of people that are looking to try to, to tackle this from different angles. The same core thesis, which was that measurement-based care and data could play a really critical role in delivering more effective and more scalable mental health care, that sort of core concept persisted. What we then added to that was a set of people, incredible coaches and, and clinicians who could deliver that care. And so we continue to measure the efficacy of the care they're delivering using you know, a lot of standard instruments like the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7 that are used for the treatment of depression and anxiety but also a lot of you know, non-traditional approaches, natural language processing and other techniques that we're using to actually understand chat conversations to back into some of those same measures and make sure that ultimately that the system is scaling. As you've seen Ginger grow and evolve, how has that clinical model evolved? I'm thinking learning from some of the ways that you can approach different segments of the patient population. And as you mentioned around scaling, so it's exciting that Ginger's in 50 countries. So even thinking about how to translate some of the traditional and conventional ways that has made Ginger so successful, but also being able to adapt to local conditions or cultural barriers, which is a huge part of mental health care as well. Yeah, such such an important need. And, and ultimately, I think it starts with recruiting a provider base that represents the population that we serve. So making sure that we have a group of providers who are diverse, who come from a variety of different backgrounds and experiences, who can speak multiple languages, who really understand and come from the communities that we're supporting. And so, you know, historically, that's meant a lot of, historically, we supported a lot of uh, large commercial uh, employers or health plans. Increasingly, we've uh, recently expanded into Medicaid populations with AmeriHealth in DC. Most recently, we just launched actually this week our offering in Spanish uh, language support. So historically, Ginger's been in, in English. And so each of these are, is, is an expansion in, into a new community that historically would have not been able to get access to that care. And uh, you know, to the heart of your question, requires us to continue to be able to, to scale up the network and scale up all the infrastructure we have 
to make sure we can still deliver the same level of care for those new communities. And the reality is they're, they're going to be different. You know, they're going to require some level of personalization and customization because the ways in which those populations or communities might access care or find value from that care will be different. But there are also a lot of similarities. And I think part of what has helped us scale is being able to build on those similarities across those populations. And now that there's macro trends with populations of color actually being the fastest growing segments of the American population. So how do you think about ginger kind of in that broader context within the United States, given some of these macro trends around population growth? That's a great question. Uh, I think it touches everything we do at Ginger, which is to say that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is both injected into the care that we're delivering, but also needs to be reflected in the, the broader team that we're building. And as the populations are changing, we need to continue to make sure that we're, we're building a team that has that at its core, right? And, and that, again, that represents those, those, those changing dynamics. I think what the last year and a half certainly has meant is that a lot of pop, all populations, but even certain communities of color have become more willing to seek access to care which is fantastic and, and is unlocking a lot more support for many people. And because of the incredible access constraints in this market, it's also meant that it's harder to find those same providers and so to support those same populations. So, you know, it's both that the demand is increasing in those groups, but also that um, the supply isn't necessarily keeping up with those populations. And so I think that's where, you know, it's certainly something that we're really focused on is continuing to scale up and that diversity can re- be reflected in so many ways, right? It, you know, it can be the, the cultural or kind of racial community that you affiliate with, but it can also be reflected on a lot of other dimensions that are also important. And so I think it's a big opportunity. I think it's, it's going to be ultimately a big opportunity for those communities of color to get access to care. I think that's a great point. And it makes me wonder too, when you first launched Ginger, what the reception was from an investor angle and even from a consumer adoption angle, thinking that 13 years ago, there wasn't as much sensitization or even acceptance or even an acute need from a lot of groups and stakeholders within healthcare around mental health. So what was that like when you first started Ginger and and do you see the industry and the consumers shifting their mindset regarding mental health care? Oh, goodness. Uh, Yes. You know, um, I mean, on on multiple levels, right? Like there was just digital health as an ecosystem being this afterthought, if you will, right? You were either in medical devices or developing some sort of, you know, specific like physical hardware technology, or you were in electronic medical records, but there was, there was nothing in between. And as we've learned right over the last decade, there's a whole lot in between. There's a whole lot of ways in which technology can be an accelerant to what's already happening in person or a standalone complement. So I think those provider groups and others have started to change. They've started to integrate mental health care into primary care, for instance, has been a huge push over the last, certainly the last even two decades, but within the last five years in particular, where more and more payers, providers, and otherwise plans are recognizing that the mind is not separate from the body, that we actually need to treat the two together and that those can be highly correlated and, and highly impactful. One can highly impact the other. And so I think you're starting to see that represented both in the investments, what the investor community is making, but also that health plans and provider groups are doing to actually support mental health care overall. 
And I think that's a, that's a great sign. And we've still got a long way to go. At the end of the day, when I think about landmark legislation like the ACA and mental health parity that came with it, it put a stake in the ground around the importance of mental health. But when it comes to actually following that guidance and that those, that legislation, we're still not doing a very good job as a country. We're not paying for mental health care in the same way that we should be. And as a result, see the access constraints and the quality issues that we have. With COVID-19 and some temporary authorizations, both on the insurance side and also on the Medicare Medicaid side for reimbursements for things like telehealth and mental health care as well. Do you see any shifting trends that are more institutional or systematic versus something that is more ephemeral around better reimbursements and better policies that will actually institutionalize how important behavioral health is? Yeah, I, I think I'm naturally optimistic. I think I have to be, or you have to be, if you're going to be in this space for as, as long as certainly I've been doing it. So I am hopeful. I do feel like the CMS director, I think, said, was it last year, earlier this year, the genie's out of the bottle, right? Like, I think there's no doubt that we've seen what the other side could look like. And many members prefer these virtual first models, not for everyone, certainly, but it's an incredibly important as a part of this system, right? It, it's not a it's not a standalone side project. It is going to be a core part of how we transform healthcare. And in and of itself, it's insufficient. Right? There's a lot of systemic changes that need to be made, like payment reform and overall shift to value-based care to help actually reimburse mental health care more effectively. I do think there are certain operational challenges like state licensure that really exacerbate the access challenges that and not didn't altogether go away, but certainly the COVID telehealth waivers helped demonstrate just how powerful it might be if the supply that you have in certain parts of the country could be leveraged in other parts of the country that don't have the same capacity to actually meet the need. And there is no reason that that still exists. There is no reason. So I would love to see reform around things like licensure, things like reimbursement for non-traditional visits, other ways in which we can start to unleash innovation in this space that will actually move the needle, will unlock access to many more people, and will also attract more talent into the space so we can have enough capacity to, to meet the demand because the demand continues to accelerate at an incredible pace. Pushing a little bit more on COVID-19, were there any changes that Ginger incorporated or adapted as a result of the pandemic or any new opportunities or challenges that the pandemic has created for Ginger? All of the above. I mean, the last 18 months have been, you know, incredible to say the least on on all dimensions. It's been incredibly challenging to see the amount of need there is in this country and just the stats that continue to come out. You know, one in two Americans have some sort of symptoms of depression and anxiety. This that the how pronounced this is actually in adolescent populations. So that's had, you know, I think pretty material impact on just the overall demand for services like mental health care that and especially virtual mental health, which has been, I think, really an accelerant, certainly to our book of business, both for employers, but also increasingly for health plans. I think that, like we were talking about earlier, I think it's, it's again, demonstrated that these sorts of approaches can have a really big impact and unlock a lot of access for many members. It started to prove that to a lot of plans that 
unlocking that access actually could have a lot of great downstream implications to the overall cost of care and that it doesn't necessarily need to lead to an increase in, in overall costs. And so I think overall, you know, certainly we've gone through a couple rounds of financing uh, over the last uh, 18 months and most recently have uh, merged with Headspace to form Headspace Health, you know, all in the last since COVID-19 hit. So, you know, I, I think mental health and virtual care are both having their moment during this time. And we certainly sit at the nexus of both of those core trends, which is exciting, but also requires a lot of navigating, right? A lot of learning and and figuring out how to operate in a fully virtual team model for our own company and also being able to adapt to just all of the stress and anxiety that exists across the country. And you know, whether that was as a result of the election most recently or the pretty systemic conversations around race, those all led to more engagement on the platform because more and more members wanted to be able to talk about these sorts of issues and the impact it was having on their mental health. So there was very direct impact on just our utilization rates and how members were accessing care. But I think the question behind your question, which is a good one, is that's complicated. And certainly, you know, mental health care in the United States has a specific set of needs. As you start to think about what that looks like abroad, there could be different needs. What we've learned so far has been that while the language people use might be different, the core stressors and, and issues, sleep, relationships, workplace stress, being a new mom or a new dad, like all of these core things, grieving the loss of a loved one, certainly during COVID, those were universal needs, right? And universal issues. And so, you know, we saw the stress and anxiety peak in different countries, in Italy early in the pandemic, and in Japan, and in, in a number of other countries, in India and otherwise. And so, you know, in some ways, we had a barometer kind of how people were feeling in many of these other countries. And, you know, ultimately, again, our, our vision is a world where mental health is never an obstacle, and that was never had a qualifier, which was only in the United States. And so, when I think zooming out longer term, what do we want to be able to try to achieve? We want to be part of that movement and that mission to unlock access to care and high quality care, especially in these other countries where the access challenges might even be more pronounced than here in the United States. You know, trying to be mindful in that rollout, it's hard to be all things for all people all the time. And so wanting to make sure that we can prioritize and, and do that in the in the right order and the right phasing. I think that's so much of the the puzzle when it comes to scaling venture-backed companies overall, but certainly companies in the digital health space, which is, it's complicated. It's certainly complicated in the United States. You want to make sure you get the compliance and rules and regulations right and protect members' safety and privacy and, and the quality of the care delivering. So it takes time is, is the short answer. And with all of this interest going into mental health care, especially at the startup level, you've seen a lot of new entrants as well that are kind of straddling the spectrum between behavioral health to even some adjacent or ancillary services related to overall health and well-being. How do you think of Ginger differentiating itself or systematizing its position in this broader ecosystem with all the interest that's injecting into mental health care? I get this question often, and I think it's a great question because 10 years ago, there wasn't a digital mental health ecosystem. So if we're to achieve our vision, again, of a world where mental health is never an obstacle, we can't be the only one because the world is a big place and there's a whole lot of need and this is only getting worse, not better. So we got to be able to move fast. So overall, I'm really 
I'm excited about the level of innovation and interest and, and focus on solving this problem. No doubt about it. And we need a ton of innovation to really help address this. I think that there are a lot of interesting features that are being built. You're going to see a, a level of consolidation that's going to happen in the space as it becomes, you know, certainly as it's continuing to becoming more competitive. But I think that, competitive is, that competitiveness is driving innovation. Our take on it is that ultimately this has been a, a supply and demand imbalance issue and that to solve this problem, you need supply side innovation. And that it isn't just about taking an offline visit and putting it online. And when you look at most people in this space, they largely are taking, let's say, a therapy interaction that's happening offline and delivering it via a tele 45 to 50 minute video visit. We think that's insufficient. We think there aren't enough providers out there. There certainly aren't enough therapists. There definitely aren't enough psychiatrists. And they are most certainly not enough, let's say, child psychiatrists who speak Spanish, right? To be able to, to scale that capacity, you need to actually reinvent how the system works. And that's where prevention plays such a really critical role in this whole experience. And so for us, our fundamental differentiators are really being able to create this, in, in effect, real-time or on-demand access to care 24 hours a day, seven days a week that's highly accessible, that's very comprehensive, that can actually scale to meet the needs of a really wide spectrum of members because most people don't know what they have. They just know they need help. And ultimately that's affordable because again, therapy for everybody doesn't work because most people don't need it. And in fact, other kinds of interventions may work better and be less expensive to them or to the to a, a plan sponsor who might be sponsoring their healthcare. And so when I think about this at a macro level, those things are really critical. And that affordability and the ability to deliver cost-effective care, in addition to preventative care, in addition to accessible and comprehensive care, we think is the you know combined solution that's going to allow us to unlock this. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be other folks in the space and, and we're going to continue to be able to learn from and, and innovate from each other, but that's our approach to this and, and really in being able to build experiences and routines that last a lifetime. Now, the burning question on our listeners' minds is the recent announcement of Ginger's merger with Headspace, which we alluded to earlier. First of all, congratulations. It's really exciting to hear. I've personally used Headspace, and so it's great to see these two industry giants sort of combine. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about what that process was like from the origin to where you see the growth potential moving forward. So starting off, can you provide a little bit of context for listeners on how this merger came about and also why now? Absolutely. I am uh, thrilled as well. I'm also a longtime uh, Headspace uh, member and have, have used the product uh, personally. It's been, a, it's, it's been a really important part of my entrepreneurial journey and maintaining my mindset and building resilience. And you know, I think we've sort of talked about a lot of the core pillars and they all come together in this core concept, which is, again, there are a billion people worldwide worldwide right now with a mental health need, 75% of them are receiving no treatment. And when we think about how we can solve this issue at scale, you know, we developed and have developed this powerful clinical and on-demand mental health system with coaches and therapists and psychiatrists. And we need to continue to be able to develop and offer a level of prevention and promotion and early intervention. That was going to be the only way we were going to scale this. And so Headspace has built an incredible product that's loved by millions and millions of people in many, many countries around the world. 
and they have injected you know real science and evidence into how they've built that how they validated the efficacy of, of mindfulness and meditation and what we saw was a chance to be able to bring two companies together that believe in this full spectrum of from prevention and promotion all the way to chronic condition management if you will for behavioral health care and so that combination was pretty special and we were hearing from many of our members an interest and a need in being able to move downstream, if you will, into some of that, like you described, the sleep hygiene or other meditation or mindfulness or preventative activities, the, the level of content. And on the Headspace side, they continue to be hearing members asking for more, saying, hey, I'm receiving you know, this, this meditation and mindfulness program. It's really helpful. And I think I need more. I think I might need to see a therapist or a psychiatrist or even potentially a coach as part of my, my care paradigm. And so we got a chance to bring the, the two groups together. I, I used to talk about when we first made our pivot into becoming a provider of care, that we could, we could do the three, C, three Cs. And basically, you could pick two out of the three Cs. And the three Cs are content, coaching, and clinical. We picked coaching and clinical, if you will, right? We, we were really on the people side of developing and unleashing that level of care. But the level and sophistication of the content and sort of the engaging experiences that the Headspace team has built is, is pretty incredible. So that's what really brought this, the groups together. And COVID has certainly accelerated this need and gives us a chance to do something really special in mental health. It's great to hear. And specifically with Headspace, I'm curious where you see Ginger folding into Headspace. So can you walk me through that? new transformed end-to-end kind of consumer journey now that Ginger has merged with Headspace? Certainly. So the combined entity is called Headspace Health. You know, there are certainly a number of details that we're going to continue to to get into as we, you know, integrate our our two teams. And that's what, you know, a lot of time and energy is starting to go into now. The idea really is that we can be with the member throughout their journey, right? Is that whether it's someone who is needing access to some sleep tips or other uh, meditation or mindfulness programming. And for a subset of those members who, let's say, develop an acute need, they have the ability to actually talk to a coach. And that coach can then actually potentially connect them with a therapist if required. And that care team can, just as importantly, curate content, a set of programming or, or the dynamic playlist within the Headspace app, if you will, that is targeted to what they're working, is in effect... We have that within the Ginger experience right now, where we've developed a set of content. We've acquired the assets to content over the years, including the assets to Lantern and to Live Better and a number of entities. And in many ways, it's an extension of that experience that our coaches and our clinicians right now curate content for specific issues that a member may be facing. And now we have access to an incredible spectrum of that, that content that the Headspace team has built from the Ginger side. And from the Headspace side, that means that those members who might need an elevated level of care who maybe walked in through a door that doesn't feel like mental health. It's really largely lighter touch and lower stigma, which is actually a really wide spectrum of the population. But some portion of those folks actually do need more care. And what they were doing right now is asking Headspace for that. And now this allows them to be able to get frictionless access to that care. Now, it's not an MBA podcast if I don't ask about the strategic rationale for merging the two companies versus an alliance or partnership or a joint venture. So can you walk me through what the thinking was behind actually merging the two entities versus pursuing some other type of 
closer coordination through a less entrenched configuration? <laughs> Great question. That is fair. This is an MBA podcast. I, I think, um, you know, a, a couple of considerations. I think it, it starts maybe first and foremost with team and, and culture is really understanding and having alignment on a core set of vision and mission and values. And we really saw that across these two teams, which then unlocks the opportunity to consider merging versus some sort of, you know, other configuration, if you will. We were both looking at this problem from other, either end of the spectrum. And so again, then the ability to combine these two entities allows us to actually tackle that full spectrum at scale. And so really this was, how do we make sure we have the least amount of disruption to what has been an incredible level of growth over the last, certainly the last few years in particular, while still being able to step up and scale to meet that need. And so a merged entity, Headspace Health, with the Ginger and Headspace brands as they exist today, allowing us to continue to, to meet that need while reducing the level of complexity that often goes with combining and, and doing a bunch of reorging was a really critical part of sort of how we thought about what, how should the deal come together and how do we make sure that we can actually not slow down right but really accelerate through this whole process so i'm excited it's been it's been a, a real pleasure to get a chance to meet so much of the the headspace team to kick off our meetings with the um you know mindfulness and moment of meditations to really be able to share you know some of the core values and culture that we really hold dearly on both sides that are actually very aligned and that's made this process so much easier so you know we've got a lot of work to do ahead so but we're excited about what we've been able to achieve so far now that Headspace Health is a formed entity, what are some of your near-term priorities or obstacles that you see in figuring out how you're going to work together and push change moving forward? You know, I'd say that the, probably the most immediate uh, opportunity is really being able to sell into our respective books of business, if you will, particularly on the employer side and, and with a number of our health plans, where we now have combined thousands of, of companies through that have purchased either Headspace or Ginger's the opportunity to be able to cross-sell, if you will, uh, one or the other to ensure that those companies now have the full end-to-end experience is, I think, you know, the, the most immediate term need. The idea that many of these, particularly employers, have recognized just how important a virtual mental health offering is to their employees. And so many of them are going through that buying process now and they're evaluating vendors in this space and they're trying to understand who's out there. And so that's something that we're really excited about. It's, it's clearly a, an immediate opportunity to start to create much more value there for our, our employers because Headspace has done an incredible job of driving a level of engagement with an, an employer. Typically, 25 plus percent of an employee base will be using the Headspace product. So it's just a great way to start to infuse mental health into a wide spectrum of, a, of an employer base and then offer additional levels of, of care. You know, medium to longer term, there is also an incredibly massive and big direct consumer business that the Headspace team has built that has scaled and again is in 100, 190 countries internationally now. And that opportunity to start to bring in the overall coaching and, and other levels of, of support to those members is really exciting. Because again, for many of these people, they may be living in, in places where that access to that care is is really hard. And so the Headspace brand is, is beloved by many. And we think that the combination of our two entities 
ultimately being able to deliver that full spectrum of care is going to be is going to be pretty special. So, you know, that's in the in the medium to longer term if you will. One additional area that I find really fascinating about Ginger is the fact that you're also doing a lot of research and building a database to measure mental health outcomes. And this may be because it is a brainchild of MIT and a bias there towards gathering data and partnering with academic institutions. But it would be great if you could walk me through the ongoing process and progress on feeding into the general thought leadership and data-driven aspect and accumulating something that I would imagine there isn't a ton of great data around mental health care and tracking what outcomes become more efficacious and how you see that sort of moving forward, especially with this Headspace Health merger. Now we're talking. I agree with you, Jing. I think this is really an incredible opportunity. In many ways, ultimately, it comes down to gathering data so you have better understanding, a better context of what someone's going through so you can deliver better care. It's what works for whom, when, and how, right? And both the Headspace team and, and the Ginger teams have spent a lot of time and energy in thinking about ways in which we can better understand our members and understand what interventions work for them at different stages in their life. We've, uh, and as have they, published a lot of research to demonstrate the efficacy of behavioral health coaching, to demonstrate the efficacy of, a, of this team-based or systems-based model to deliver that care. And ultimately, it's about delivering something that gets people better, that people love. And so when I think about what's ahead, you know, it's thinking about the fact that this space has largely relied on a nine-question survey that was originally developed in the PHQ-9 that was developed really as, a, as an endpoint for medications for pharmaceutical agents, but not really as an ongoing treatment tool that can we start to leverage non-traditional data sets, conversations you're having with a coach, ways in which you're interacting with the app, other topics of conversations you might be talking about to start to personalize the experience that you have and really give you the content that you need before you even realize you need it, right? Or give you the experiences you need before you need it, or call you in for an appointment uh, or have a session or whatever, or reaching out because you might be going through a symptom flare when you don't even realize it, right? That I think is an incredible opportunity, certainly for our members, but then to your point around thought leadership, it's also then sharing that data more broadly because again, we can't solve this alone. We need to be able to share what we're learning and learn from others. And so our thesis is that we need to be a thought leader in the space. And that means publishing what we're learning for others so that they can build on that and we can build on that, right? And so it's a hopefully beautiful and virtuous cycle because again, in mental health, we're, we're well behind other parts of medicine that have actually developed maybe more sophistication and more ongoing clear tracking. And so bringing objective and measurement-based care to the space is going to transform it. There is no doubt. We're like developing as a field now so much more data than we've historically been able to. And obviously data alone is insufficient, but we're now starting to be able to tie that to other data sets to understand our members better and help deliver better care. Are there ongoing studies right now or partnerships with academic institutions to garner some of the data that you're collecting and create some measurements and tracking, especially thinking about mental health care through COVID? Yeah, there, there, there absolutely are. Uh, partnering with some of our advisors, as well as the Headspace team has a number of uh, existing research studies they have in play. And I think that's how this works. You know, we, we learned that in our early days. We did research with eight out of the top 10 academic medical centers. We published with many of them. We learned that process is actually really powerful and valuable 
both so that the field understands, but that we understand how we can better treat our members. And now I'd like to pivot a little bit into entrepreneurship. So you're an entrepreneur and a very successful entrepreneur. And so a lot of our listeners are interested in the startup and space and even potentially starting their own companies. So curious to hear from your perspective, what do you look for when assembling your team? It's so foundational. I've, I've definitely learned over the years how, how incredibly important having the right team on the right mission with the right core values as your operating system is to, to success. I mean, in many ways, it's, it is the company, right? The, the team you build is the, is the company you build. So I think a filter that, that I've used over the years, and frankly, I've learned from mentors from our board to our current leaders has been to lead into Lead into your values. For me, that means looking for people who are, you know, largely speaking, optimistic and bright-eyed, if you will, who believe that the future can be better than today, who who are curious, who ask great questions and and largely have a growth mindset and think about how they can actually continue to learn and grow and be better, who are willing to engage in the tough conversations, who seek truth and speak truth, who are, are looking for sort of the fundamental core issue. Don't take offense when being asked or queried, but also ask for and require the same. And, you know, who who are ultimately, who also have a whole lot of fun because the reality is this work is hard. And in many ways, it could be life's work. It's not solved overnight. Some of these problems in in healthcare and mental healthcare certainly are are pretty intractable. They're they're societal challenges. And so they're going to take months, years, potentially decades to solve. And so I think got to have a lot of fun along the way. Uh, and I think that's a really critical part about creating an environment that um, that is enjoyable. So I think those are some of the things that I, I largely look for. And, you know, ultimately it's in service of the end user, what we call our members, you know, our first company value is member first. And, and we look for people who, you know, want to and believe in building an experience that ultimately gets people better. And what do you look for in investors? And how do you think about fully leveraging your investor pool? One of our early uh, angel investors and mentors gave me this, this great advice. He said, you can sort us at the time. He was talking about other angel investors, but really investors overall into A's, B's, and C's. The A's get it when you pitch them. In many ways, they were already sold before you came to them. And so they're a clear win. The C's don't, and but they tell you up front, and they're they're pretty transparent about, hey, here's the reasons why you know I don't I don't think this is going to work, and you end up wasting all your time, quote unquote, on the B's, the folks who you think you can convince, who you know send you on a bunch of <laughs> rock fetching exercises, who actually you know are looking for you to prove out. And the reality is that they're never going to get there. So certainly in those early days, especially when so much of what you're, you are you know, selling is you, your team, you, you know, your approach, because you may not necessarily have a whole track record or months or years of experience yet or data to lean on, is finding your tribe, finding those A's. And the A's will help you find other A's. And so that was a really useful sort of framework for me. And I, I found that the A's are the investors who I think were already bought into this core hypothesis and thesis by... Talking to other entrepreneurs, talking to other folks who are in the space who might have already gone through and had filtered, um, had their own, their own version of filters so they could find the, the, the investors that resonated with their, their core values. And then 
once you've selected them, I mean, the reality is you're, you're going to be working with them for a long time. And so, so much of this is actually about being, you know, having an honest and real conversation, being direct, seeking truth and speaking truth again. And the more you can transparent, you can be the better they're going to be in supporting you. And I think, you know, it's, that was definitely a lesson that I've learned over the years and that in our early days, you know, it was hard to necessarily understand what do you share and when, in what formats. And largely speaking, you know, there was sort of an inside versus outside framing. And I, I realized, I think, over the years, just how important it was actually that, especially for your, your, your core investors and your board of directors, that they had a really good understanding of what's happening in the inside, that they could come to your company, that they could talk to anybody in your team, and everyone would largely be in sync. And that, that comes from, I think, just being transparent. So that's, a, I think, for, I found that for us and for me personally to be able to get the most out of our investors, it started with full transparency around how things were going and the challenges we were having and the wins we were having. And the more you can be transparent and direct and have those tough conversations about the things that aren't working, the better advice you're going to get.